Welcome to the Taylor and Jen podcast. Mornings with Taylor and Jen. So what was your mission going into this book? What what did you want it to do for, for parents? My goal was that it would help them to be able to differentiate between what's healthy child behavior mm-hmm. and what represents anxiety, and then hopefully give them some tools for things that they could do mm-hmm. um, that would empower them yeah. um, in how to be a team with their child. I think oftentimes, when the, particularly when there's anxiety, it becomes adversarial because you just want the child to do something and they're over there being anxious about doing it. It becomes this adversarial relationship instead of kind of we're a team and anxiety is the enemy. I want to get to that. That's actually one of my questions. And I wonder, because children are so smart and they pick up so many words, uh, but kids nowadays, <laughs> it makes me sound ancient. Kids these days. Kids these days. Yeah. They know these words. Uh-huh. They 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 know they can say I have anxiety or mm-hmm. I have this or I have that, and I wonder if the word anxious is right now, if it's become just a a jargon or a buzzword or if it's utilized too much. Uh, what do you think? I think one of the things is we use it to describe the everyday healthy response we have to something like, I have a test coming up, so I need to study for it. I'm feeling a little anxious. That's a normal healthy thing. Mm -hmm. We use the exact same word to describe that as we use to describe a mental disorder that if I don't get treatment for it, it's going to be incapacitating. And it makes it hard because then it actually minimizes or trivializes when someone's really got a serious illness and can actually over-accentuate something that's normal and healthy. You know, that's hard. It's hard to explain that to a eight-year-old. Right. Yes, you may have anxiety about the fact that you've got, you know, this test coming up, but that's not the anxiety that becomes debilitating. Right. right. Or you can go to the other side of the coin, which is what I was in high school, where I was like, this can't be that bad. I should be able to push through it. Exactly. Yeah. And so it took me probably two, three years of feeling like something might have been wrong before I finally worked up the nerve to set up an appointment with a counselor. Mm-hmm. And that happens for a lot of people. They don't realize what it would be like to not be anxious yep. because they felt that for so long. It's like, well, must be everybody feels this because they're using the same words. Yeah. So I I mean I've been thinking about this for a while when I finally broke down and told my parents, "Hey, I think something's wrong. I'm going to a counselor." They were honestly their response they they seemed a little heartbroken that they didn't oh. notice anything, they didn't see Seriously, any signs. That is my number one question on here, Taylor. And and so like I'm thinking about through my eyes, I was afraid to bring it up to them or I didn't feel like I needed to like I didn't feel like they they would judge me I felt like they would be open but for whatever reason I didn't feel like that was something I could share I would never blame my parents for missing this in me because as a teenager you get good at hiding this stuff so I think the question is what does it look like to create a home where conversations like that are welcome and to be able to ask your kid hey how are you doing allows them to pull out some of those deeper things that they're not as comfortable saying. Yeah, I think it has to be an ongoing conversation that you're having. And you're right. You have to create the atmosphere where it can be okay, which means it has to be okay for parents to share when it's a bad day as well. If children believe that the parents have it all together, then what's wrong with me that I don't? And kids are good. They perceive these things. If they perceive that somehow the parent is going to feel like a failure, they'll do things to protect the parent too. So you have to know you wouldn't think you were a failure as a parent if your child got diabetes. No. Um, this is no different. It's a chemical imbalance in the brain. 
And if your child was feeling off physically, you'd want them to come talk to you about it. And we make that okay. Hmm. So how do we create environments where it's just as okay to say, my stomach is feeling weird because maybe I have the flu, as it is to say, my stomach is feeling weird because I'm having trouble and feeling all jittery inside all the time because it's anxiety. When my daughter got the diagnosis, mm-hmm. my first thought was, what could I have done differently? Mm-hmm. I must have done something Please tell me that that's not just because I'm horribly self-centered. <laughs> please, please tell me that this is uh, that I am not alone in feeling yeah. that way when that happens. No, it happens a lot. In fact, that's one of the things that was hard about writing the book is you don't want to reinforce that for people, that somehow they've done something wrong if their child has that. Certainly, there are things we can do that help kids that have anxiety, and there are things that we can do that can contribute to anxiety, but it is an illness or a pattern of behaving in the world just like anything else, and we're not going to be able to keep our children from having all of those problems. The deal is how do we help them when they have them? This book is so rich. I mean, you were talking about, you know, the things that lead up to potential anxiety and you talk about all the different kinds of attachments, which I read that and I thought that was fascinating. But I guess I didn't realize that an adolescent is 11 to 19 years mm-hmm. old. You talk about the adolescent brain. They're ruled by some of the same emotions as a toddler. Yes. And I was like, oh my goodness, that is so very true <laughs> now that I look back at it. But tell us a little bit about, I know it's it's a huge chapter, so I'm asking you to nutshell this. How do adolescents' brains work when it comes to anxiety? I think you have to remember in that framework, in that time period, they're trying to decide and figure out who am I as, an, as a young adult? What am I capable of? And how am I going to feel about me? And how are others going to feel about me? And at the same time, I'm attempting to separate from my parents and get that sense of identity from something other than my mom and dad. Yeah, you can really feel that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm pulling away. And yet I don't know how to do that independently yet. And hopefully in that space, they're pulling away from their parent and attaching to God to do that. Mm. But that's not always a smooth transition in between there. And, and they do it in jagged ways. And they're, very, they're still very self-centered. They can think outside of themselves, but they're thinking a lot about themselves because they're trying to figure themselves out. They know what their parents think about a lot of things. And now they're trying to decide, what do I think about a lot of things? And am I going to do it right? Am I going to do it wrong? Am I going to be able to be a successful adult? I don't know, but I want to be. And so it's a lot of pressure. So how as parents, how do we tell the difference between normal anxiety and abnormal anxiety? Mm -hmm. So it's awful difficult to tell sometimes. But one of the things you want to use is level of impairment. So that healthy anxiety that we have motivates me to say study for the test or accomplish whatever task it is that I'm worried about. And it doesn't prohibit me from doing it. Mm. When that anxiety crosses that line to, I am immobilized and I can't even study because I'm so worried, or I can't stop studying for fear I haven't studied enough, Mm. then it's interfering in my ability to live my life. Or at a younger age, the child that can't stay overnight someplace else for fear that something bad will happen, or they can't sleep without the light turned off for fear it's beginning to interfere in their ability to live their life in a healthy way, then we're looking at something that's becoming a problem. Is that first one that she talked about, did you recognize that, that fear of not being able to stop studying or the immobilization? I I got with more of the immobilization. Uh, When when my depression and anxiety were one-two punching me at their worst, I went for probably about two years where 
I could not read more than a paragraph at a time. Yeah. I, I could not read my Bible because mm-hmm. my brain would just say no. Yeah. It, it, just it, was, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. And how old were you at that time? I would have been 19, 20. Okay. So yeah, that adolescent mm-hmm. stage. At that space where you feel like you should be able to do all of those yeah. things. So what in the world's wrong with me that yeah. I can't? I've always been a straight A student. I've always been successful yep. at whatever I put my hand to. And now I can't even read a book. Great. Because when your brain is in that fight, flight, freeze, and it's stuck there. Yep. Um, it can't concentrate. All I can think about is surviving. We tell our kids they are not their diagnosis. Uh-huh. We tell them you are not your anxiety. Mm-hmm. You are not your ADHD. You are not your depression. You are not those things. But sometimes the culture kind of defines them or compartmentalizes them that way. How do we fight that as parents, that our kids are not identified by their diagnosis? Mm-hmm. It's helpful to externalize it. Anxiety is something that's outside of you that's impacting you rather than it is you. Like your personality is not anxiety. It's similar to a virus that invades, mm. right? We wouldn't call ourselves a cold. So helping them to see it as an illness that's invading and trying to take up space, and we're going to fight back and fight it off. And we're going to find some really good coping strategies to do that. We're going to get medication if we need. We're going to do the things that fight it off. But it's like a virus or any other illness that's attempting to invade and take up space Mm -hmm. rather than it's who I am. And kind of helping them to see that in the book, I use the illustration of defining anxiety as a lion, because lions are big, scary things in kids' lives, mm-hmm. particularly little kids. And so it helps them to say, oh, but I could become a lion tamer. I oh. control it in the end, kind of helping them to get that picture. For little kids, you can use something like that. For adolescents, it's helping them see it more as an illness than as who they are. Um, man, I, I hate that this is my next question, but what do you do when your child wants to use that as a crutch not not maybe not necessarily a crutch no that's something that i really watch in myself i think it is hard finding that line of i need to take some me time today because it's a bad depression day versus i really don't want to do the dishes right now so i'm gonna say i'm really depressed (laughs) yeah and as an adult you can figure those things out and you can kind of do it for yourself with kids you're helping them to figure those pieces out and and like okay so it's that sort of day so maybe i need to take a little break, but that doesn't mean I'm not still going to study for that test. Okay. So how do we help them balance it? We don't want to invalidate what they're feeling, yeah. but we also don't want to let it begin to control their life. So if the lion is roaring large today, how are we going to talk back to it? What are we going to do to manage it today? Hmm. Um, and you know, staying home from school and not doing any of my homework is not going to manage that very well, but maybe I need to do some deep breathing. Or maybe I need to do some of those things that help me kind of get back in control again. Which is almost what you do when your kid says, I have a stomach ache and I'm too sick to go to school today. Exactly. Is recognizing, okay, how are we going to tackle this in a way that's helpful to you? Like, okay, you can't sit on the couch and eat candy all day. That's not good for your sick stomach. Yeah, that one is a hard one. Mm -hmm. You know, as as a mom with a child that had anxiety, still does deal with it, but Mm -hmm. now she's an adult. You know, there were days during the... Her school life where I don't want to deal with this today, mom. I can't deal with this today, mom. And sometimes it would present itself as just flat out anger. Yes. You know, and I come from a world where you went to school, you know, unless you were incapacitated to the point of, you know, bleeding yes. out. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. Totally. If you can walk to school, you're going to be there. Exactly. exactly. If you can't, I'll drive you. Uh-huh. And I don't know that I ascribe to that, but that was the paradigm under which mm-hmm. I worked. So here I am at tr- dealing with a world that I did not understand, yeah. but 
it was valid. Mm-hmm. And there were days where I said, you know what, if you're okay with dealing with having to catch up afterwards, you can stay at home. Right. And looking at is staying at home actually feeding the anxiety? Right. Because the more I avoid it, the less I feel like I can do it. Right. Or is it taking a needed break so that I can regroup, get my senses back about me mm-hmm. and be able to fight again? Yeah. Um, we started calling them mental health days at my house uh-huh. among the three of us. And it was, don't tell me that you're sick. Don't tell me that you, how much you dislike school. Articulate it to me in such a way that, mom, I think I need a mental health day and I can understand that, mm-hmm. but be prepared to deal with the consequences. Yes. yes. When I heard the metaphor of the spoons, it really helped me understand this, where basically everybody starts their day out with a certain number of spoons and it might take me one spoon to get out of bed and brush my teeth. It might take me two spoons to go and get the groceries. It t- might take me three spoons to make that difficult phone call to my parents about something. And so depending on how many spoons you start the day with, there are only so many tasks you can d- get done. And so thinking about what are the wisest ways that I can spend the spoons that I have. Wow. Yeah. That's a great vi- visual for kids. Too. Yeah, absolutely. Really helpful. Jean, why are some people prone to anxiety where others aren't. How can you have two children who have the same family tree and one of them has anxiety and the other doesn't? Genetically, some of us come more sensitively wired up. Mm -hmm. um, So we're more affected emotionally by the things around us than others. And some of us, our biology just doesn't work as well as others. I always tell my kids they get to blame my family tree for all of the mental health issues because, boy, they're there. Um, and they get to blame their dad for all the teeth issues, right? I, mean, <laughs> I, read, that, I read that in the book. I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> just, we just genetically yeah. come with some stuff. Yeah. And then the environments that we're raised in, um, my two children are two years apart, which meant that their early life experiences weren't the same early life experiences, and it affected them differently. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, a boy and a girl, so when they went to school, different things happened. All of those stressors also impact, because as you stress the system, if it's going to give way in some place, those places where we're not genetically wired up as strongly give way. So for some people, that's depression. For some people, that's anxiety. For some people, their body physically catches colds at the drop of a hat. Like we all have ways that when we're stressed, our body says enough. I suppose that's a good reason not to ever try to compare your children Mm -hmm. when it comes to this area. Your sister never did this. Your brother never did this. Oh, you're just like my Mm -hmm. fill in the blank. Yeah. All unhealthy comparisons. Sure. Because we're all very unique. Mm -hmm. You talk in your book about how sometimes a child's view of God has an effect on their anxiety. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about that. It's true for kids and it's true for adults. So if I see God as someone who is loving and who is for me and is not looking to condemn me, but is accepting of me, I'm going to have a very different experience of anxiety than if I see God as kind of someone out there somewhere that is judging every mistake I make and just kind of waiting to smoosh me. Or punish me in some way for the mistakes I make because then I'm living in fear of what's going to happen. It's easy to land with that perception. That was my original perception of God. Sure, mine too. I said, God loves me, but he doesn't like me very Mm -hmm. much um, for a really long time because I figured he was judging every mistake I made. And if that's your perception of God, then you're always trying to figure out how to please 
an unpleasable God, and it will make you very anxious. But that's not how God is. No, no. not I at mean, all. I mean, there are instances of an angry, jealous God, but that in his holiness and his sovereignty is absolutely right and absolutely true. But there's he's also all of the other good yeah. things because he is God and that's his nature. Mm-hmm. So, well, the verse doesn't go, God is anger or God is wrath. The verse goes, God is love. Right. Exactly. How do we combat that as as parents and adults in children's lives? Mm-hmm. I love the illustration of how we think about teaching a child to walk. When an infant learns to walk, you're not sitting there as a parent going, oh my goodness, I cannot believe you fell down again, <laughs> right? You're like, oh, it's okay, get up. Because in our hearts, we know they're going to get there. Yeah. And we got to help our kids see that God knows that they're going to get there. And he knows exactly how many times they're going to fall down before they get there. Hmm. And he's okay with that in terms of that we get back up and we keep trying and he forgives and we have to live that out with him like we have to let him we have to create an environment where it's okay to make mistakes and that they can be forgiven for mistakes not that there aren't consequences but that they can be forgiven for them and that they get to try again and then we have to help them see that that's what god's doing as well and he's doing that in each of our lives like i fall down lots of times in a day and god says it's okay get up try again you talk about partnering with your child, not necessarily parenting your child. Can you give us like like serious practical examples of what partnering with a child with anxiety looks like? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean you don't parent. It's more about how you parent. Because if you're going to be the person that the kid is on one side and you're on the other side telling the child what to do, then you become the person that they're going to have the argument with Mm. rather than anxiety being the thing that they're having the argument with. So you're going to become a team with them. They got to know, first of all, that you get it. I mean, think about the last argument you had with a significant other in your world. Until you felt like they got where you were, they really weren't willing to move out of that position. And until kids know we get where they're at and how this is real, you're really feeling that afraid. Okay, so now let's together make a strategy because we don't want anxiety to win. Mm. And then we become the cheerleaders and the coaches believing they can do it and cheering them on as they do it rather than the dictator. I imagine that can be really hard. Mm-hmm. I don't have to imagine that hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not from personal experience no, or not anything. not from personal experience. I myself have not dealt with anxiety. Mm-hmm. That is that is not my cross to bear. I have many, many others. <laughs> Believe me, I am not, I'm not sitting here on a perch or a pedestal or anything. It's just, uh, it was new to me. Right. So when I had this lovely daughter that was diagnosed with this, I have to say one of the best things, and it sounds terrible, one of the best things that ever happened to me was when I found out that my one of my best friends and co-hosts, Taylor, had dealt with mm-hmm. it too. I could actually literally bounce things off of him and say, yep. this is what she's saying. And he would say, yep, oh, yeah, that sounds about yeah, right. right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that works. So help me. Mm-hmm. Where do parents go for help? I mean, besides your wonderful book, yeah. When Anxiety <laughs> Roars by Jean Holthouse, partnering with your child to tame worry and anxiety. Um, you should definitely have this book, but where else do parents go? Can they go? You can get educated. 
you can find resources. I mean, don't use the internet as like, you know, Dr. Google is not always nope. a great thing, but there's also lots of great resources out there from like NAMI, um, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, that can give you information and a kind of understanding of what it's like for children and how that's different. Even asking a therapist, a lot of employers have EAP programs where you could check in with a therapist and say, okay, just help me understand what this would be like for my child. And let us know what EAP stands for. Uh, sorry, Employee Assistance Fund. Yes. Programs. Mm-hmm. So a yeah. lot of employers have that. It's a free resource it to is. you. It is. It's great. Usually, usually you can get three to four yep. sessions for completely mm-hmm. free with a therapist, yeah. and that's really nice. And you can just do some bouncing off of somebody like that. Churches oftentimes have great resources for understanding those things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get materi- books and materials and listen to your child. Like, mm. what is their experience? Because oftentimes they can describe what it feels like when they're anxious Versus when they're not anxious, particularly as they begin to work on it a little bit, they can get language for it and they can tell you. You know who one of my greatest resources was, and maybe this isn't everybody's experience, but my children's pediatrician is one of Mm. the most wonderful men I've ever met. And he's been with my children since I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. We did all of the research and the interviews and we chose him and he's been with us now for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, when my daughter went through her issues and then when my son had a little bit of a bout with depression, Dr. Brian was where I went first. Yep. And, and I mean, and I had them checked out physically. Yes. And you want to, because there are a lot of things that mimic both depression and anxiety that have nothing to do with depression and anxiety, but the symptoms look the same. So a doctor visit, visit a good physical, not the one that you get to sign off so that the child can go play sports, <laughs> but the one where you go in and say, okay, we need to check because these are the symptoms we're seeing yeah. Yeah. Um, can be really important. I think it's important to know is this is a long-term thing. This isn't something that happens suddenly oftentimes. It's not something that gets fixed suddenly. And oftentimes I think parents need to know it's really stressful for parents. I mean, when you've got a child that's not sleeping, that won't go to school, all those sorts of things, it's really stressful and it's really hard. So make sure you stay well supported Mm. in it because you can't help your child if you're not taking good care of you. And unfortunately, oftentimes for children and adolescents, when they get anxious, it begins to look like defiance. And we can even define it as defiance because they just refuse to do some things And it doesn't make sense to us why they're refusing to do those things. And so it looks like, well, how come all of a sudden I have this defiant child? Yeah. And we can begin to try to punish it instead of recognizing it's a symptom. It's a symptom. Then what do you do? What do you do when your child Mm -hmm. is defiant and they either want to do things that they shouldn't do or not want to do things that they should? And that's where you have to begin to look at, okay, how do we make a team here? Mm. How do we work towards something together? Yeah. Um, And if they're unwilling to be a team with you, that's where you have to seek outside resources. That's where counseling can be really helpful. Because sometimes a counselor can say things to them that as a parent, you don't get to say. Right. (laughs) Well, also, they they have time to cool down between the time they've had the conversation with you and the time they have the conversation. (laughs) This is true, too. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And because they've calmed down, all of a sudden they see things differently. Yes. Well, thank you, Jean. Where can people get the book? You can get the book anywhere that you buy books um, or bakerpublishing.com. The Taylor and Jen podcast is a product of Northwestern Media, a ministry of the University of Northwestern St. Paul. You can hear more from Taylor and Jen weekday mornings online at life1071.com or on the Life 107.1 app.